Hi, this is Glenn Lowry of The Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv. I want you all to know that new episodes of The Glenn Show come out every Monday at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show and are then made available for the general audience the following Friday. I also want you to know that I've recently started a free newsletter at glennlowry.substack.com where I've been publishing transcripts of some of the things that are said on the show. So please consider subscribing. Thanks. Hello, James, how are you doing? I'm great, Glenn, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. This is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv, also patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. When I'm not talking to John McWhorter, that's every other week, I'm talking to somebody else and this week it's James Lindsay. Uh, James, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more extensively? I suppose, yeah. I run a website right now called New Discourses. It's a I try to put out material explaining broadly what we might call the woke movement um, that kind of grew out of the research that I did to help write a book called Cynical Theories that came out this summer that explains the postmodern component. I know it's a philosophical word, but the postmodern component of the woke way of thinking. And that grew out of what I'm probably, formerly at least, was best known for, which was the Grievance Studies Affair, which was a series of academic um, hoaxes isn't quite the right word. Fake papers is a better way to describe it um, for a technical but correct reason that we did in 2017 and 18, my, myself along with Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrose, who wrote Cynical Theories with me. Um, so I've been writing, I'm an author, I have a PhD in math, not in any of the social science or uh, humanities type stuff. Um, but I've been I've been writing, I guess, professionally ish, it's hard to make money writing for about 10 years now. Um, so this is sort of what I do. And right now I've dedicated all my time to explaining the philosophical and activist and uh, kind of historical precedents that have led us to the I would say woke catastrophe that we face at the moment. Okay, and I gather that cynical theories, which I tell you, I have not had the opportunity yet to read, um, but it's on my list. Uh, and I gather did very well, uh, bestseller lists and all of that. Um, I, I, I gather that cynical theory sets out some of your uh, overview of uh, postmodernism and, and its deleterious influences on intellectual life in America and more broadly in the, in the rest. So what right. you and Helen uh, Pluckrose, what, what are you guys uh, after uh, in the book? And uh, I also want to hear more about the, uh, about the, uh, the hoax stuff. Right. Right. So cynical theories, if, if, if I had a copy, I do actually hang on. I have a copy and I, I'm not doing this to shill, but if you look at the cover, it says critical theories and then criticals crossed out and it says cynical ah, on the cover. Okay. So what it's actually trying to detail is the, what happened in history, I guess, intellectual history is that there's a movement called critical theory. Many people have now heard of it. It's considered fairly obscure. It began in the 1920s. It's kind of rolled ever since. And what happened is in the 1980s and 1990s, a, a batch of critical activists started looking into the French postmodern philosophy and Kimberly Crenshaw, Bell Hooks in particular. And they started to cherry pick from the, from, from the postmodernists. So Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, et cetera. Um, and I should also have mentioned Judith Butler there and probably 
Gatry Spivak and uh, Derek Saeed. Bell. Derek Bell was not cherry picking from the postmodernists. He actually is very materialist in his approach. So his work would have been more in the vein of critical theory and less in the vein of postmodernism. Kimberly Crenshaw was his student, his, his, his PhD student. And, or maybe it's, I don't know if it's a law, law school, no or, doubt. Yeah. Yeah. It's law school. Um, she, she was the one who started to incorporate elements of postmodernism, mostly probably following the lead of bell hooks, who was talking about it in most of her writing through the eighties and following the lead of Judith Butler, who had just picked up a garbled copy of Derrida and created her own new post-structuralism or whole new deconstruction that's not the same as what Derrida recommended in the first place. So these people in the 70s or in the 80s, I said I should say, picked up postmodern tools to apply it to critical theory. So the book tries to what we did was we worked backwards from the theorists of today, Robin DiAngelo, for example, uh, in critical whiteness studies as they call it. Um, we can name, I don't know, probably a hundred different scholars who are all working in this kind of woke scholarship. But the most touch point name is Robin DiAngelo with her book, White Fragility. And we worked backwards to see who were they citing and who are they citing and who are they citing. And, and what we found is that nearly all the roads lead back to Michel Foucault. And so it's been a big argument in the academy since the 90s. Has postmodernism died? Is it done? Did it, what, what's going on? And we make the argument that no, it mutated. And in fact, that the critical theorists picked up postmodern epistemology, the, their approach to knowledge being an application of power, and started to apply it to the activism that they were, the radical activism they were already doing. And so we try to tell the story of how postmodernism got appropriated to intellectual and activist life from 1990 to today. Okay, now forgive my ignorance. I'm just a humble economist over here. Um, Good for you. <laughs> what is postmodernism? Again, I know that's going to sound like a very silly question, but uh, I have no, to it's ask. a hard question because all the people who were postmodernists denied that they were postmodernists. And then you have people like Judith Butler, who are, are extremely postmodern, who said that if we defined postmodernism, it wouldn't really be postmodern anymore. So I can't be a postmodernist and there can't be a definition of postmodernism. But my kind of working definition given what's going on is it, 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 I mean, we could pick a number of working definitions, but one of them is um, the belief that a claim upon truth is actually an application of power. That in fact, to make a claim on truth, you have to have been given the power to make that claim, the authority, whether it's by becoming a humble economist, whether it's by becoming a scientist and being credentialed with a PhD, whether it's by being appointed to a presidential council or the cabinet or whatever else, to, in order to make like Fauci has been appointed to the role that he's in um, to speak on behalf of COVID-19. So their claim is that power decides who gets to claim what it is, is and is not true. And so as Michel Foucault had it, uh, his belief, and I think this is really quintessential of Foucaultian postmodernism, is that if you have a claim upon the truth, a statement that you're saying may be true, it might actually be true or false, but that misses the point. That Foucault said it misses the point to discuss whether a claim on the truth is actually true or false, because the point is that you have to interrogate the power dynamics that allowed somebody to have the authority to make that claim. And so it's a complete shift away from epistemology into turning everything into kind of this squabbling about power dynamics. 
there are other dyna- there are other there are other definitions that we could apply. I mean, the postmodern condition, for example, just to broaden this impossible thing, as laid out by uh, uh, Jean Francois Leotard in the postmodern condition, is 1979 when he wrote that. He said that simplifying in the extreme, very famous sentence. Post, I define postmodern as an incredulity toward meta narratives. Meta narratives being broad, sweeping explanations for how things work and how things are to be contextualized. Um, in a sense, what it what what they're claim what postmodernism could then be boiled down to is that every attempt to talk about how the world works is sort of on an even playing field, where none of them should be believed too seriously. They should all be seen as kind of social and political constructions. In other words, the social or cultural construction of knowledge and its relationship to power is the primary object of interest of postmodern philosophy. Now, every claim seems inordinately strong, but some some important claims uh, resting on power dynamics seems like a hypothesis worth entertaining. I agree. In fact, I point out that the, the if we look, I mentioned Fauci quite intentionally. If we look at how the COVID-19 policy, you know, there's much skepticism, at least on the right around it. Uh, if you look at this situation, the way, you know, Fauci said, don't wear a mask. Then he said, wear a mask. Then he said, wear two masks. Then he said, the CDC maybe doesn't know if you should wear two masks. Then he said, nope, probably two masks. Maybe we have to do three masks. When you see this kind of thing happening, People say, how did this happen? Why is the number changing? Of course, science has to find answers and develop. I think it's reasonable to say, you know, people are making their best guesses. And as they get better information, they'll update those guesses. But there's also the possibility when you get into anything fuzzier than like Newtonian physics, which is quite cut and dry, you get into anything fuzzier than the very hard sciences, that you do have this kind of human element that has to be investigated and interrogated. I would say that that's probably something that you face a lot in economics as well. Um, it's a difficult, the, 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 what's, what am I looking for? The order of complexity of the problem is extremely high. And so human influences are a little higher than say, you know, building a rocket to go to Jupiter, which is just straight, simple Newtonian mechanics. And you can get it there with a second's worth of accuracy. And they are a little bit nuanced around this. But if you read, for example, Lyotard, he's quite, I just mentioned, he's absolutely just savagely critical of science as being one of these kind of meta narrative type things that needs to be doubted that it's just another form of legitimation by paralogy, he calls it, which means legitimation by consensus rather than legitimation by finding, you know, reliable evidence. And then later in his life, he says that he was, he, he actually didn't know what he was talking about with the science. And he actually just butchered that by making a bunch of assumptions. And that he, he claimed near the end of his life that that was one, that, that like his most embarrassing work. It was, it's his worst book. And it's taken as kind of the staple. So these 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 guys were were intellectual showoffs, and they were primarily working within. They were looking primarily at soft sciences, where I grant them a hundred percent. It's not well developed. It's not hard and fast. And there's a lot of the stuff they were talking about present there. These guys being the French, uh, the French uh, postmodernists. Yeah, I just think they were cynical in their approach, to be honest. Good observations, bad prescriptions, very cynical. Well, there is some stuff. I was just having this conversation this morning with somebody about money. Uh, He was saying money is not real. He's saying money is a (laughs) fiction. 
And I was trying to explain, no, 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 what money is, is a convention. Uh, it's a convention that works because of the mutuality of people's expectations. Mm -hmm. I take the dollar bill from you, which is worthless in and of itself, only because I anticipate someone else will take it from me in return for something that's of value. They are willing to render something of value to me for that dollar bill in turn, only because they anticipate that others will buy into the convention that the dollar bill can be exchanged for things of value. Right. Now, that is a very interesting subject, intersubjectivity of uh, human uh, convention. Uh, it's not real in some objective sense. It's, it's, it's uh, subjective, but it's extremely powerful. And we can, you know, the dollar bill is the least of these. I mean, what about debt? What, what about the complex financial uh, instruments that we see being exchanged? What about Bitcoin? All of these things are constructions of a kind. Uh, and uh, there's it just seems to me to be a lot of traction in, um, in, in, in being able to enter into that kind of uh, in that kind of reflection. So what I would tell you is that you have encountered where you have an extremely nuanced view, you've encountered kind of the postmodern flattening of that view to, you know, no, it's a convention, all these complicated, you know, important things to understand. Yes, it is in some sense, a socially constructed artifice. And yet to say, it's just a fiction. That's the postmodern flattening of something much more complex and nuanced. And I think that you find this repeatedly, especially, you know, Lyotard's confession about science later, is that there, there's a, a lack of desire to fully understand the thing they criticized. And there's often a, while there many of their descriptions about power, especially social power are very spot on and very worth entertaining and worth mining, I would say for what they can teach us, especially about a, a world where social media is dominant. Um, at the same time, cynical, simplistic, under-informed and disinterested uh, in, in any level of complexity or, or deep understanding, any perspicacity, it would is, is how I would characterize their their work. Um, Foucault wrote these genealogies, he called them, he originally called them archaeologies, and the most contemporary copy of what he did is a 1619 project. They unearth various truths, contextualize them in a story that paints a consistently negative, more negative picture than reality, whereas there are other ways to interpret that same data or to, to flesh it out with other data and create a more I think, fair picture of what's actually going on. So it's very easy to be pessimistic and cynical that way. And I feel like that's a trap they fell into. Well, I've been very critical of the 1619 Project here at the Glenn Show and elsewhere. So I wanted to note that. However, I wanted to then go on and ask you, how could the dispute between different narratives, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the 1619 Project, we should think of the founding of the country as 1619, slavery is elemental, the principles of the founding fathers were not actually realized because of the structure of American society at that time, slavery, not least amongst the offenses. Um, and we've been struggling for 200 plus years to right the ship here or to realize the ideals that were, and we should, we should understand that through the lens of African-American freedom struggle and so forth. That's one story. Uh, mm -hmm. Another story is, you know, America, the exceptional nation, land of the free, and so on. What is the objective ground for discriminating as between these narratives, other than the power of people, the control of the podium, 
and uh, the the mediums of uh, of information dissemination, the the, me the news media, the prizes that are given, isn't it ultimately a struggle for power? I mean, just a is there Almost. any objective way of ascertaining whether there's a correct or incorrect narrative about the American uh, founding? So what I would tell you is the 1619 Project is an attempt to rewrite the mythology of America. And I would tell you that the mythology of America that we promoted in the 1950s was certainly a mythology of America. In, in a very real sense, it was it was definitely mythological, it, it, this exceptional nation. There are reasons that we could say that America is special. A nation founded on ideas, for example, is one particular way. A nation that's based in, in hopefully neutral principles of constitutional law as adjudicated as best as possible by an imperfect judicial system. But nevertheless, uh, we have an attempt to rewrite a mythology competing against and in my, my opinion, just to render it flatly, is that when we look at these critical race theorists, because that's who these people are, Nicole Hannah-Jones has picked up a large amount of this, whether she is one or not, technically, she's picked up a lot of this line of thought. What you have is an attempt to write a new mythology to replace a mythology that was dominant in the 1950s. And they act as though that mythology is still from the 1950s is still the thing to compete against, as though that is still the predominant belief of most Americans, which I think is an absurd claim. I think that we actually made a lot of progress since the 1950s, but for their stuff to make sense, they have to pretend we have not and that all that progress has been fake. So you mentioned Derrick Bell, and that was essentially his thesis. The Civil Rights Act actually just made things worse. Brown versus Board of Education just made things worse for African-Americans. And that that's his thesis. It's a very pessimistic and, and almost paranoid approach to what was happening. Although it's not to, again, replace it with some rosy garbage. Like, no, you know, we passed Civil Rights Act in 1964, Voting Rights Act in 65, another Civil Rights Act in 68. And then everything was perfect. Nobody, nobody believes that, I don't think. Uh, right. It's but there's this comparison between these two national mythologies that very few people, if you were to get down to brass tacks and do a poll, especially four or five years ago before all this stuff blew up, very few people would believe either one of those mythologies in whole. And so this is where we look at that, you know, incredulity toward meta narratives. These mythologies are meta narratives about the United States. So we have to be a little bit incredulous about these. Now, is there an objective? podium from which we can find i don't think so to be That's honest not fully but there are matters of fact we can read thomas jefferson in his own words that he wrote himself struggling with the issue we can read abraham lincoln in his own words struggling with the issue we can read frederick Douglass in his own words you know attacking the issue and appealing to that set of ideas that the united states was founded on and so you know, this is, I think, when people say we should tell the history of the United States warts and all. I, I agree with that. I think that we should not mythologize ourselves to some, you know, glorious, perfect thing that never was and still isn't. But at the same time, we don't have to adopt this very um, active, useful to activists narrative, this other mythology that paints the picture much more darkly than it is. So in a sense, painting the picture too bright is an error. 
but painting the picture too dark is also an error. And seeking to do responsible, ethical, historical work, for example, to understand the people who were involved at each stage and to make the best out of what they were saying, I think is a way to, as we say, straighten the record or, or, or correct the record as much as possible. Um, and we should strive, I think, with the, the fog of history, the epistemic fog of history is real, but we should strive to have the most clear and accurate understanding. And we should try to unearth more documents and more context and understand and accept what's real and what isn't real rather than trying to force a story onto something and then make that story seem real by contorting the data. And again, I could tell you how Foucault did this with madness and homosexuality. And what, what I see in the 1619 Project is a willful attempt to deny progress. It's a story that says this was bad, then this happened and it was still bad, then this happened and it was still bad, then this happened and it was even worse. Whereas that's not really a great way to tell the story. That's not reflective at all of, of, of reality. Okay, I'm going to try to defend Derek Bell here. It's going to require a little bit of effort, but I knew Derek Bell. Um, I actually reviewed Faces at the Bottom of the Well when it, when it was first published. Um, and I was a critic. I was a Reagan conservative back in the, in the 80s and early 90s. Okay. I was a critic. But I, I came to have a good deal more sympathy for why he didn't see the successes of Brown and the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act and the general agenda of civil rights uh, progressivism as uh, an adequate resolution of the support of the problem with the subordination of slaves and their descendants. I came to have a greater appreciation for that. So I'm going to try to offer a defense to see how you react to it. I'm sitting I, in you 1980. You may find me pretty receptive to this. Okay, so, I'm sitting in 1980. There are 500,000 people under lock and key on a given day. Maybe 40% of them are black. Uh, in the year 2000, I think Derek Bell died before 2000. I'm not sure about that. But, but anyway, let me tell my story. Over the course of the next two decades, the incarceration rate in the United States rises to where there are 2 million people under lock and key on a given day, and nearly half of them are black. A lot of that has to do with the war on drugs. It doesn't have only to do with the war on drugs, but a lot of it has to do with the war on drugs. Now, A, uh, if the people subject to all of this imprisonment, this uh, three strikes and you're out, this uh, uh, longer sentences, this uh, draconian imposition of state power had been white, the deliberative processes of American social reflection would have been vastly uh, mobilized on behalf of the project of reform. But because they were black, goes this story, it was not. They were expendable. They, they, they were uh, people in our collective political imagination who were less than fully human. We didn't see their humanity. It was possible not to see it because they were black and it was possible to impose this draconian regime. But let's examine this regime for a minute. This regime is a political uh, outcome. This is not etched in stone. This is not nature. This, there's nothing in the natural order of things here. These are judgments that institutions have made in our enforcing. And by the way, they're incredibly violent. The scale of the mobilization of power and the infliction of power of state coercion on these populations is incredible. It's, it's an amazing, it's not slavery, but if I am reminded of it, 
of slavery by what is going on. Please forgive me because the imposition of state power. And moreover, what's the root of it? The root of it, at least in the drug uh, area, is huge numbers of Americans are uh, hedonistic, uh, consumer-oriented, wealthy, spoiled, many of them, maybe even most of them, white uh, people who want to get high. That creates a $100 billion a year commerce in illicit traffic. At the same time, we want not to embrace our hedonism fully. And in a hypocritical fashion, we let it, okay, I could go on in this vein. You see where I'm going with this. We are balancing our cultural yeah, budget yeah, yeah. on the backs of the weakest people. This is latter day racism. Yep. To not see it as latter day racism is to buy into a, a, you know, a fairy tale about the nature of this country. The real nature of American democracy is being exposed by this. And if I, if I don't demystify this structure, the, in, in other words, it's, this is not just law. They break the law. They're being locked up for breaking the law. If I don't see where law comes from, if I don't understand why law doesn't change in response to negative consequences of its application, uh, if I don't see this as being rooted in racial history, I'm, I am living in a fantasy world. The real world is a world of racial domination. It's going under a different cover in the year 1990 than it would have been uh, in the year 1890, but it's pretty much a, a very intrinsically American story. And by the way, critical theory, Foucault, Derrida and company helped me understand and express this criticism that I'm making right now much more effectively than before it came along. What's wrong with that? Not much, to be honest, in the big picture sense, but it's, this is where I let me tell the same story from Foucault's perspective, and maybe you'll uh, you'll you'll get what I'm uh, what I'm what I'm laying down here. So Foucault looks at the history of sexuality. This is probably his most famous work, History of Sexuality. It's in four volumes. It's voluminous. The first volume is the most relevant. You've and read so he this, says way you've back read in these the volumes. Day, Excuse me for interrupting. You're a mathematician, as I understand. You've read these. Unfortunately, four I have read. Okay, just yeah. check. I've read. I've read Foucault. Foucault's not that bad. I will confess to have only kind of read Derrida because nobody can read Derrida. It's impossible, um, and that's I think literally true because he did wordplay in French that doesn't translate, and the translations are all bad. Derrida went to the day he died complaining nobody understood a damn thing he was saying, and. If you try to read Derrida, you'll understand why. It's impossible. So I have read Foucault. I've tried to read Derrida. That's all anybody can say. I'm but impressed. I've read, all, I've read all these guys. Yeah, well, Foucault's not terrible to read, actually. He's, he's a bit grandiose. But at any rate, his argument boils I've, I've read down Discipline and Punishment. That that's the only one. Excuse me again. I, I just want the world to know that I, I mean, have. The, we could do Discipline and Punish, too. I'm just not as familiar with the, I mean, I can rattle off the, the history of sexuality a little bit more tightly. Please than I proceed. Can I, I, I apologize for interrupting you. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's good because it, incredulity toward having read postmodernists is, is a common <laughs> thing because they're, they're very difficult to read uh, and they're not pleasant to read. But anyway, history of sexuality, he starts off saying way back in, in the, the Christian domination days, homosexuality was regarded, this is again a social construction, it was regarded as a, as a mortal sin. It's a, just an absolutely heinous thing. It's an abomination against God, yada, yada. And so you had to put gay people to death, you had to throw them in holes, they would talk about discipline and punish here with a, with a grate over the top of them, you know, in the dungeon, 
etc. You have to just absolutely persecute gays on religious grounds. And then along comes in the 19th century sexology. People start studying homosexuality and they come to the conclusion pretty rapidly that it's a mental disorder. And so now we're no longer considering homosexuals raging sinners, although the Christians may still. The more refined and intellectual people, the, the, the intelligentsia are seeing them now as psychologically disordered. So what do you have to do with them? Well, you have to put them in asylums. You have to electroshock them. You have to, like, give, you have to lobotomize them. You have to do all these horrible things in the clinic. You know, we talked about the history of the clinic. So what he says is we had bad times and then we went to more bad times. And then later we see, again, it's still criminalized. It, it switches to where, okay, maybe it's not a mental disorder, but it's criminal. This is leading up to the 1950s and then leading into the 1970s and 80s. It's still, you know, it's no longer criminal. We That battle has been won. And now it's just absolutely a social taboo. And, you know, the gays are forced to meet in secret bathhouses where he ends up contracting AIDS. He believed to the day he died that AIDS was a social construct primarily to control the gay population, even as he was dying of it. And what his his argument is, is that this never get no, there's no improvement from step one to step two to step three to step four. There's no improvement whatsoever from that this problem with homosexuality is on the metaphysical plane. It's a sin, an abomination against God to wait, maybe it's something inside somebody's head. I see that as an improvement, even though the conditions didn't improve much materially. And then from there to, wait, maybe it's not actually a psychological disorder, but it's still bad. And now you've removed the disorder aspect from this. And then you go a step further and now it's just socially taboo. He doesn't see this as a progress. He sees as a, 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 where, where at no point in that progress is anything perfect. He sees it as just the same manifestation of the same problem all along. But for me, if you have moved from saying, that there is a literally otherworldly reason that you can't possibly touch that's utterly unfalsifiable for why gay people are intrinsically bad to wait, maybe it's inside their head. Maybe it's something in the world. You've made tremendous progress and he doesn't acknowledge that progress. And I think that Derek Bell's doing something similar. Now I have a very probably controversial opinion. I think that Derek Bell and I think in fact, Robin DiAngelo are to you know at the other the most recent end of the same spectrum are pointing to very real things that they misdiagnose plus this relentless pessimism i don't think that derek bell's wrong for pointing at what he's pointing at i think he's wrong for pointing at the causes or he's misdiagnosing the causes i think he's correct as you steel man and and and, and put his argument forth but the causes of these things it's it's very simple to say first of all it's similar to in ways, but not identical to slavery. And that, that distinction must be acknowledged. And I think that this pessimism tends to miss that, right? Certainly, it's different than slavery. Slavery where people were literally being bought and sold and not considered to be humans or not considered to be, it's a very different thing from, well, you're a human who broke the law and you have to go to jail and yeah, there's going to be hard labor and we'll probably profit off of you. This is a very different thing. It's not good. I didn't say it's good, but it's different, right? And so if you completely negate that difference, you're doing something a little bit pessimistic and a little bit cynical. Further, my thinking on Derek Bell is that what he was actually looking at, and you may disagree or agree with me, I don't know, mm -hmm. is that what we saw in 1964 
was we saw not only the passage of the Civil Rights Act, but we saw President Johnson begin the Great Society. The Great Society was, in many programs, probably quite good. But in other programs, it established entitlements that had horrific effects on poor communities that skew disproportionately black and brown. And those, those entitlement programs, and I mean entitlement programs, began to skew things in a particular way that created those conditions. Now, why is it relevant to bring that up? Because this was a failure of progressive policy. I say this as somebody who's identified as a progressive for my entire life. This was a failure of progressive policy that had bad unintended consequences. But then to say, oh, this is just a revamping of racism. What it was, was it was a sloppy hand trying to fix a problem in a, in a ham-fisted way that created new problems that have very similar uh, expressions. Now, by 1990, 1992, when he wrote Faces the Bottom of the Well, what's really going on here? Were Black people throughout American society, was racism gone? Glenn, I tell you, I live in the South. No, it wasn't. <laughs> 1992, it was still pretty you. racist, okay? I believe you. I live in the South. <laughs> I have seen the change. I have lived through the change. Okay. I've seen it. And then I assume that from 19, you know, 90 or so back to 1970, I assume there were also changes, but I wasn't there for those. I, I was born in 79. I don't really remember before the late eighties very well. So we'll leave it at that, but I've seen the change since 1990 to now these past 30 years, there's been a lot of change, a lot of change. And so what's going on in the 1990s? Certainly there's still racism. Certainly. I mean, we had Joe Biden standing up, you know, dropping this particular crime bill that we're actually kind of pointing at. We see the impacts of the attempt to, to put in uh, affirmative action and where that worked and where it didn't. We see people deciding maybe we need to back off from that. And then we have certain activists, Derek Bell among them, are thinking, no, pedal to the metal. We need more of this. And so you have a, a whole lot of stuff going on. But at the same time, you also have, and I'm not doing the let's play the exception card, but you have to recognize he's writing Faces at the Bottom of the Well in 1992. It says that Black people are at the very bottom of the well. Oprah Winfrey has the biggest television show on TV. Michael Jordan is the most famous person in the world. Michael Jackson's just king of pop, king of everything. He's Bill not totally Cosby. weird yet. Bill Cosby, you have to watch the third rail, but yeah. the number one television show. Right. Things were not the same. And I'm not saying like, look at the exceptions and forget. I'm saying things were not 1970 anymore. Things were not 1970. I remember in the 1990s, my typical, I, I loved to watch black comedians. I still think black comedians did more to end racism than anybody because they helped people, white people in particular, learn to laugh at themselves. They, the thing, the critical theorists, the critical race theorists say white people need to learn that they have a culture. Like Richard Pryor told us that. Are you kidding? We were laughing about that 30 years ago, guys. Like, you don't have to shame us for something we were already, you know, we already dealt with, except maybe the progressives who haven't realized this. So what I'm seeing with Derek Bell and what I'm seeing with Robin DiAngelo is progressive people. And Derek Bell's different, of course, because he's black versus uh, Robin DiAngelo is white. But Robin DiAngelo, I think her whole book is a confession to this, is that the progressives have had a pretty bad track record with confronting their own racism. And they're projecting it onto everybody unfairly. 
And I think therefore many of the things they say are true, but they don't apply to everybody. They don't apply to society at large. They apply to the bubble and the circle that they ran in. What exactly That's, is uh, the how I read Robin DiAngelo, for example? What is the racism of the progressives? Can you can you spell that out? <laughs> well, there's this wonderful book. If you haven't, if you haven't read it, it's a true gem called "Good White People" that was written not. in uh, I think 2014 or 15. It's Shannon Sullivan. She's not small, but Robin DiAngelo is great for this too. Okay. And or we could go back to Malcolm X. You could all of these guys, and even even Martin Luther King in his most frustrated moments in Birmingham jail, all talking about the white liberal, the white liberal this, the white liberal that. So this that good white people is about white progressives and white liberals, which Robin DiAngelo defines as someone who thinks they get it, somebody who thinks they're less racist, somebody who thinks that they're not racist. And they she says, DiAngelo says, and I quote. Good white liberals do the most daily damage to people of color. Okay. So what these people are, are the people who are writing policy like the Great Society or like Joe Biden's new equity program. They think they're helping. They aren't bothering to actually connect with people, whether it's black people, whether it's Trump voters, whether it's whoever. They're up in their, whether it's ivory tower or I guess it's maybe pearly white tower or whatever it is. And they're refusing to actually meet people where they are. They're refusing to actually try to find what's really going on. But they are, we say virtue signaling, but they're signaling, I have the right views on this issue. I know what's best. I know how to do it. And they think because they are on the right side, this is how, the, how, how we would define this. They think because they're on the so-called right side of history, that they are, I think D'Angelo is right, not racist. And they don't have to argue with themselves. They don't have to dig into themselves and see what's really going on here. I, I said years ago, I said, I read these, these critical race theorists, the white ones, the critical whiteness studies, I should say, I read these people. And what I think is they're the kind of person who walks down the street and a black person walks by the other way. Right. And they see that black person and they say in their head, not out loud. I mean, that'd be really weird. They say in their head, there's a black person. And then they think, Oh my God, I noticed. Oh my God, I noticed. Ah. And they, they, continue i know i can't believe i saw race i can't believe i saw race the next thing you know they just hurry back to their apartment and type out an angry blog post about how seeing race is racist to project that out into the world and that all white people do this and it it's i think almost a form of mental illness at that point to be honest with you and i don't think that it's coming from a place of honesty or reckoning i talk to my conservative friends which i have many of now and they say, yeah, we've been being called racists for 50 years. So we've all had to like ask ourselves, are we? What do we do when we encounter racial difference? Are we? And most of them have reckoned through this and have gotten over it. And they watched, again, the black comedians who so, so purposefully made good fun. And I mean that in the, the haha good sense, good fun of white culture and made it visible did all the stuff that these, these shame merchants are trying to do now, but they did it in a way that worked and they did it in a way that brought people together, able to laugh, share a room, et cetera, rather than having to do whatever there is now where we have to go into separate struggle sessions. So maybe that wasn't a very clear answer, but I a find a lot to agree with, with misdiagnosis with these people. I was going to confess to something. So I mentioned John McWhorter at the beginning. He's uh, my conversation partner here at the Glenn Show, a regular. Yeah, we're black. We're the black guys at blogheads.tv. Like That's what we call ourselves, the black guys. And we're we're being a little, 
you know, ironical uh, in doing it because sure. we actually want to uh, advance a view of the world that is not conventionally ethnocentric and, you know, sort of uh, focused on our blackness so much. We, we think that's a part of our persona, but it's only a part of who we are. On the other hand, we are the only yeah. black guys at blogginghits.tv. A lot of people who uh, listen to us uh, and comment say, thank God for you. You're helping me understand what's going on. I'm so glad to see your voices and for so forth coming out. And I keep thinking when I read these comments that, well, we're black. And the fact that we're black, we're giving them cover. You know, we're saying something that uh, they might think too, but feel it would be racist to think it. But now seeing a black person say it, like, like there's just too much crime and violence in black communities. It's just, just uh, too much incivility and the behavioral problems that are manifest when we see the homicide statistics are a deep manifestation of pathology in the community, which is not simply structural racism. To say that it's structural racism is to put your head in the sand. They hear the same things like that. Those are things that they've been thinking themselves but have felt unauthorized to think. Now we've given them the authority mm -hmm. to think it, this kind of thing. Uh, and no, and I, mean, I sometimes a, I have a, misgivings about that. I mean, I, you know, about playing that kind of a role and, you know, having my race be used in that way. And, and I, I worry, but I, I, the net calculation I've made is that, uh, John, I think, agrees that we have to tell it the way we see it and let the chips fall where they may, not get into this business of calculating who's listening, what will they think. What about the alt-right? The alt-right are citing us, the alt-right are, are liking us. I mean, that's a very deep problem if the alt-right are like, are, oh, by the way, are, are you on the alt-right, uh, James? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I keep being, I keep finding out from other people things that I apparently am. And so, I mean, no, I'm not on the alt-right. In fact, I still probably, if we, we, we looked into it, I probably skew left with most of my policy and certainly most of my social prescriptions, but I would not skew woke in anything. So, so what do you, what do you think? Alt-right means not woke. I'm super alt-right. Okay. Well, no, it means, presumably it means a lot more than not woke. It is necessary, but not sufficient to be not woke in order to be alt-right. Yeah. Uh, but no, but, I'm not a big fan of, of, of racial calculations at all. Right. Um, I'm not a big fan of it. And I actually end up getting myself in trouble a lot because I forget that you're supposed to make these calculations because I just don't. Um, I'm in trouble with, with I'm being accused of being anti-Semitic now because I didn't make that calculation correctly, apparently, as a Gentile. Um, I'm not Jewish either. Uh, I keep getting asked if I'm Jewish now, but I'm, I'm willing say? to touch those third rails. Be what did you say? Oh, I said that, that, that there are... Yeah. I said something true, which is always the most dangerous thing in the world to do. Um, I said that as I've actually encountered it. So here's something that happens. I have to give a little context. If you criticize the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, well, a lot of people don't know the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory is where a lot of the woke movement has its roots. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory was virtually all Jewish people. They were almost all Jewish. In fact, they may have all been Jewish. As far as I know, all the prominent ones were Jewish. They also escaped the Nazis by the you know skin of their teeth, got brought over to the United States, first Geneva yeah. and then the United States. So they have they have you know 
a pretty anti-fascist, anti-Nazi kind of streak in them, as one should appreciate. But they also were Marxists or neo-Marxists, technically. And they therefore, and you can read it explicitly in their work, wanted to tear down Western civilization for a Marxist revolution, not for a Jewish anything. This is very important to point out, apparently, because people don't understand. And so when you have actually a group of well-financed Jewish people who ended up having a lot of influence, Columbia University, UC Berkeley, UCSD, You want to name CIA, some of these people? Herbert Marcuse, Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer. Uh, sure. I mean, Jürgen Habermas, not so much. He wasn't as relevant. Mm -hmm. um, Marcuse, probably most relevant. To be honest, Herbert Marcuse, probably the most relevant. So when you he have was these a protege kind of, of very, uh, Angela Davis, wasn't he? He, in fact, Angela Davis claims that he radicalized her and yeah, he was he instructed her doctorate. Yeah. At UCSD. And so when you ha and you'll notice Angela Davis, probably not Jewish. I don't probably think so. Not Jewish. <laughs> but when you but when when you point out that there were there was an organization of people who happened to be Jewish who were having a mission to tear down Western civilization. Oh, a lot of okay. people who are reactionary. Yeah. You know, you know, you know what I said there are, I have been hearing from, I criticize the Frankfurt school a lot. So what I get is an inordinate number of people sending me messages, talking to me in person saying, James, just take the last step. Just admit it. It's the Jews. And I won't take that step. <laughs> because it's not correct. And I said, hey, world, this is happening. These people are gaining in strength and they're recruiting members by pointing this out. And blue check Twitter decided that that meant that I blame Jews for anti-Semitism and they're having a field day and I, it's too important to not talk about. So let them have a field day. Like you said, you got to say what you got to say and let the chips fall. Um and I hear you. And the, the thing you're talking about, by the way, I think is one of the ugly, nasty consequences of pushing identity politics. I don't think that we were over identity, but we were closer to over identity than we than we are now, maybe 10 years ago. We were closer then. And the reason is that all this identity politics, the more you make identity salient, the more social significance you put into identity, the more people have to make those kinds of calculations. So social significance gets put back into blackness explicitly by these activists in the critical race theory. I can show you the quotes from Bell Hooks. I can show you the quotes from Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Mapping the Margins, 1991. You can look her up. There, she says explicitly, I am black is a more important statement than I am a person who happens to be black because the, the latter of those puts universal humanity first and that wouldn't be productive of identity politics. She says that. So when you put that social significance in, as a Kenyan friend of mine told me recently, you make the same mistake of 1650 all over again. And then what happens is everybody has to start playing in that social economy. So now you and John have to make this calculation. I've met John. I'm talking to you, both incredibly intelligent, thoughtful people who should be able to say whatever the hell you want without having to make calculations about you yeah. know how does my identity what's my how does my standpoint influence this but at the same time because identity politics have become more relevant and because social significance is back in racial and, and sexual and gender categories 
now we have to play this little game all the time. Where's my standpoint? What does it do? Am I giving cover to people? Um, and of course, you will have read Shelby Steele. The moral authority argument you made is true. Moral authority has been drained out of certain groups of people, whether it's men, whether it's whites, whether it's, you know, I guess Asians now too as a racial group are white adjacent. So, you know, they're basically the same. Moral authority has been stripped out. And so there's this weird thing where you almost feel often, and you shouldn't, as though you have to hear a person with a particular identity or skin color or something say a thing before you can be allowed to say it. Uh, because goodness knows you're going to get labeled, whether it's anti-Semitic, whether it's racist, whether it's transphobic or whatever it is, otherwise, or even so. And I know that the things that you'll get called are going to be even worse, like it's really okay. nasty. Yeah, it's nasty. Well, I, I got used you. to it. It's all, it's all good. I don't That's what I spend a lot of my time worrying it. about it, you know. Uh, that's why you're so respectable. I mean, that's the thing. People who just speak the truth and call it as they see it, right or wrong, are people worth respecting. Okay, I'll take that as a compliment. Thanks. But I want to talk about Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. What do you think happened in the election? Do you think it was on the up and up? Uh, are all these claims about uh, fraud and uh, misbehavior and whatnot uh, obviously wrong? Uh, and people should be driven out of uh, public life if they entertained them? Certainly nobody should be driven out of public life for entertaining ideas. I think that that is a dangerous place to go. So we'll start there. But what do I think happened in the election? Yeah, that's Well, what I'm first asking. of all, I have to say I don't know. And I'm annoyed with people who believe they know. Because I think there's a lot of ambiguity around it. I think there are suggestive pieces of circumstantial, at least evidence that may not indicate any bad activity or any, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, um, irregularity. No, there were irregularities. Okay. So there were unambiguously irregularities and those ir irregularities match with irregularities that we see when in other countries that indicate blatant misfeasance. So misfeasance was the word I was looking for. I don't know if that they indicate misfeasance here or not. It's the same pattern that you see where misfeasance has occurred in other places, where the, the votes count stopping, for example, for several hours, and then you come back online and the numbers have changed dramatically. I don't know if this is on the up and up, as has been explained. I don't know if it's not on the up and up, as you would see if it happened in Turkey, everybody would be like, wait a minute, right? Erdogan, what are you up to? Everybody would be suspicious of this, but Maybe it's on the up and up in this case. Maybe it was just mail-in ballots. Maybe it was just this. Maybe it was just that. As for whether or not there was manipulation around the election, not only do I think that that's absolutely the case, which is different than changing vote totals, by the way, outright election fraud. Manipulation is different. Not only do I think there was, Time Magazine just published their confession two days ago. So What is, it, what is manipulation? Define that. What is manipulation? So in this case, the manipulations included a concerted campaign by social media to suppress certain ideas and certain views. For example, the Hunter Biden laptop uh, story, which seems to grow and lose relevance depending on whatever else is going on in the world at any given time, but was certainly just completely suppressed in advance of the election. You saw these 
um, manipulations on Twitter, for example, that you could no longer naturally retweet. You had to push the retweet button twice. They didn't explain that to people. So people thought they couldn't just retweet certain information. Turns out that on progressive blogs or explanations of what was going on, maybe this was coordinated and maybe it wasn't. We now see the thing in the Time Magazine saying that there was a literally they call it a cabal <laughs> they, they, they call themselves a cabal of people who had organized to um, make sure that the information space that the legal uh, requirements around whether you can do mail-in ballots where you can do them what the dates would be etc all of those things there was a cabal it was started they that's their word for themselves so i'm not applying it to them um in, in late 2019 to try to organize that the election would would be, they said that safeguard democracy away from Donald Trump's manipulations. And then they just talk about all the manipulations that they did. There were certainly um, examples that they talk about even in the article where they had to keep Republicans away from the vote count tables because they were harassing, uh, the Republican vote watchers were allegedly harassing Democrats yeah. and not wearing masks and so on. So there were definitely irregularities there was definitely a manipulation of the of the the media space. Whether, I mean, whether that constitutes election fraud or malfeasance, I don't know. Whether it constitutes some form of manipulation to where, where you have massive social media companies that control much of the flow of relevant information, working in concert with traditional media to skew perceptions in a particular way so that you know people would vote in particular ways is another thing then when you look again at changing the election laws on short notice often um okay as we saw in pennsylvania in the illegal ways. so there are lots of things here to where there's a feeling of manipulation around this election let, let me stop you for a minute i want to go on with this but uh first of all mm -hmm. i have to say a lot of people are going to say it's irresponsible of me to even allow someone on my podcast to say the things that you've just said oh i know the saying of them is somehow seditious or profoundly disruptive of rationality or whatever. And you'll uh, and notice I just, that I started I, with, I don't know. Exactly. As my That's where I wanted to, to go. That's it. where I wanted to go. Why does it annoy? Where I wanted to go was, what? You can't even ask a question? You can't even ask what happened? It, it, it's, it's seditious to ask what happened? Really? Do you think you know what happened? So how would we know what happened? Are we going to be in such a state that we compel ourselves to encant a mantra about what happened because it's politically acceptable to do so without examining what had, might have happened? So I, I think you have to be able to ask the question. On the I other agree. hand, on the other hand, the courts, uh, the political process, uh, Where's the evidence? I, I can remember that press conference that Giuliani and company had when with the the hair dye running down the side of his face. <laughs> uh, they alleged they alleged a nationwide coordinated Democrat conspiracy to steal the election. Right. Where's the evidence for that? And if the evidence for that is not sufficient to give to lead a court to think that perhaps something that warrants intervention has happened, don't we have to, whatever the doubts might be, put it behind us and accept the outcome of the process? So, so if the uh, uh, malfeasance or uh, whatever doesn't rise to the level of 
credibly suggesting that the outcome of the election would have been different, uh, it, doesn't the uh, sort of logic of the legitimacy and stability of our democratic processes require uh, both the former President Trump when he was in office, but then the rest of us too, to uh, get behind it, get behind the reading of the election as having uh, produced the legitimate outcome of Joseph Biden being uh, uh, the winner. Well, I, I think have to obviously agree with the caveat that we have to be able to ask the question. We have to follow the evidence, but we also have to be able to ask the question to look for evidence that may not have come to light so far. Not to say that we should have, you know, some ridiculous number or quantity of resources dumped into it, like we might do if somebody believed for four years that Russia stole an election. Um, <laughs> previously, maybe, <laughs> but we should be able to ask the question. So I think that the answer is that if the evidence isn't there, and I said this recently in a very colorful way on a different podcast, because I didn't know I was being recorded yet. Um, I mean, I knew the recording light was on, but I didn't think we'd started because the other guy wasn't there. And so I won't repeat the F word on your on your show. But I said that if the evidence isn't there, you need to shut the F up. And so we have to go with what the, the totality and the balance of evidence says. OK, but we should also be able to remain suspicious. We should also be able to request investigations. We should also be able to. Uh, to ask the question, and it is the right of every human being, especially in a free country, to hold doubt of anything they wish to hold doubt about. Um, a party line is not a strong basis for any free country. In fact, it's antithetical, uh, antithetical to one. And so, um, yes, I agree with you. We should follow the guidance of the best evidence that we have while being able to ask the question and being open to the possibility that the mantra is just a mantra. A lot of people think that what happened in Dallas in November of 1963, the killing of Kennedy, mm -hmm. was not accurately rendered the assessment by the, by the Warren Commission. A lot of people right. think that, you know, serious people, serious historians have written books in which they raise questions of this sort. Right. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. No, he didn't. And then there are various accounts of who might have been involved in that. Um, I don't recall anybody being run out of town on a rail because they doubted whether or not the Warren Commission got it entirely right or because they were prepared to entertain one or another speculation for which there might be some circumstantial evidence. Uh, that's an entire uh, industry and it's gone on for a half century. Um, so this election is not going to go into American historical memory with one narrative about it. There, there are going to be conflicting narratives. And there's something, I must say this, uh, and I've already come out and said Trump should have stepped aside after he exhausted his remedies in the courts. And the fact that he didn't uh, uh, is to his discredit. I've, I've said all of that. Um, but... Uh, uh, the idea that you're going to uh, uh, discredit or defrock or uh, uh, render uh, unemployable a person who entertains in their mind the possibility that something uh, went on that wasn't appropriate here, that, that really feels quite 
tyrannical to me. It, it, it feels like uh, thought control uh, to me, and, and I, I worry about it. I worry about it on the direct level, as you do, and I worry about it on a deeper level in what it will provoke. And I'm not calling for anything. I, I hope nothing happens. But the truth is that when people feel like they've been stripped of any reasonable means, what they're left with is unreasonable means. If you take away everybody's legal means to ask questions, the questions are going to come somehow. What you're going to have is, is, is you have a very large population in the United States right now, many tens of millions probably, who are yeah. extremely suspicious of this election. And what I've said from the very beginning, this is, I said this, I think from like the 6th or the 7th of November, I've said Trump and his team are not acting like people who have evidence and the Democrats and their team are not acting like people who are innocent. What do you mean they by are, that? If you're innocent, you're open to an audit. If you're innocent, you're I open see. to having the question. The question being asked will vindicate you rather than declaring absolutely unaskable, getting banned from social media for asking the question, getting shut down, getting being, being called out by a congresswoman as needing to be put on a list to be made unemployable or an unpersoned. Yeah. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that somebody who's innocent does. Now, I do understand that we live in a fractured information space, a fractured, you know, uh, I don't even know. I, I said I wrote an essay a long time ago saying that the Overton window hasn't moved, it's been broken. There are two of them. And there are more than two of them, I think, now. Uh, it's It's been shattered. And so within each one of these little Overton windows of acceptable opinion, they don't even necessarily overlap that much. I can understand the idea that you would say, okay, we're going to, some of these are, are QAnon, abjectly crazy, and we're going to just completely discredit that one, and we're not going to entertain it. But it's another thing entirely when you start um, not just suppressing, which is a hard question about dialogue in social media and in, in, in our social media era, but actively punishing, canceling people, making them unpersoned and unemployable as a willful act, uh, attempting to create lists of people um, who, who participated in this. Many people who just showed up to the Capitol on the 6th to engage in what they thought was free assembly yeah. and free speech, utterly peaceful, utterly calm, never had anything to do with what happened that was inappropriate at the Capitol, except having to have been within a few hundred yards of it when it happened being put on no-fly lists and being harassed by, by border agents and things like this. This is absolutely an overreach that should be an outrage to everybody who cares about civil liberties. Um, it's easy and to I think see. we should be able to agree with, on that. I, I, I do agree with it. Um, and it's easy to see the overreach if you just switch the script a little bit and imagine uh, facial recognition software used to identify people who attended uh, rallies for Black Lives at which uh, violence broke out or something uh -huh. inappropriate took place. And then you try to affect their employment prospects or otherwise damage them uh, publicly because they were present at such a thing. Uh, it would be, uh, you wouldn't, it, it wouldn't take long before the massive uh, machine of uh, progressive uh, propaganda was mobilized on behalf of the free speech and right of assembly rights of people to express their political opinions and you can't persecute them for having done so. 
And quite rightly, quite rightly, there's an infinite gulf of difference, an infinite gulf of difference between showing up to protest freely in, say, for whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Stop the Steal or whatever the thing was called, and being the person who lobbed the Molotov cocktail. The gulf between those things is, is incommensurable. But what kind of person would come to the defense of the insurrectionists now? Uh, and, and I mean that only slightly uh, tongue in cheek when I say it. I mean, uh, of all the things that we could talk, be talking about right now, uh, why would we be defending the insurrectionists? Are you, you say you I mean, why, about- did the, why did the ACLU and the Supreme Court defend the Klan and their right to free speech? Okay. Good answer. I mean, I don't know anybody. I mean, I'm going to get accused of being a Klan supporter, which I'm not. But, you know, why? No, that, would, because... that would be a willful distortion. You just made an analogy. You're saying exactly. the, reason, the reason to speak for the insurrection, quote unquote, the insurrectionists is that many, maybe even most of them were not, quote unquote, insurrectionists at all. And that people should be able to assemble and express their um, views about uh, American politics without being demonized for having done so. Yeah, That's I think like that the, the people ACLU who were would say that on behalf of the Klan. It doesn't mean you endorse their views, but you did vote for Trump. You told me you do endorse did, their views. But let me make a point real quick, which is that I think that every single person who was involved in something genuinely insurrectionist, the people with zip ties running around in the Capitol, yeah, unambiguous that this is a problem. They should be investigated, and they should be held to account by the law. And when they've been held to account by the law, they've been held to account by the law, just like every other person in our entire political system. Whatever law applies is what law applies. If that ends up disenfranchising them because that often happens for felons, that's what happens. Every single person who is actually involved should be, and I know this is idealistic, it's not realistic, but every person involved should be held in in a perfect world exactly to the level of account that they deserve. Given the under the law, when I say deserve, I don't mean that in some like metaphysical moral sense. Yeah. So everybody carrying around those zip ties should probably be in some trouble. People who just happened to be there or thought, oh, wow, a bunch of people are going in. I'm going to wander in too. Like that old lady with the flag and her mask pulled down. Everybody's seen the picture of yeah. like, what did she do? Like the guy carrying the podium. Well, you can't steal a podium, dude. But the guy just walking around smoking weed in the middle of the rotunda, like, like, what did you do, really? As a friend of mine said, you know, we call it insurrection. People say it's a coup. A friend of mine said recently, and I just love it, calling it an insurrection or a coup. Now, there were certainly people who had that intent, but they were relatively small in number. Um, calling it that, given that they had no plan, obviously, once they got in, there were people just taking selfies and making videos for the gram and every other thing. He said it's seven orders of magnitude too stupid to have been a coup attempt. Seven orders of magnitude too stupid is what actually happened at the Capitol. Now, that's an order, you know, a matter of debate. But my, my, my hard and fast opinion is that every single person involved in the Capitol, as well as, to be honest, the, the various racial justice as they were, uh, protests and pe- mostly peaceful protests and riots, and 93% peaceful, we were told, they should all be held to account under the full expression of the law based on what they actually did. And I understand that's idealistic. I understand it's impossible to do in practice, but the best job possible should be done. Um, So I'm not saying anybody should be let off the hook. And I'm not even saying, oh, well, a bunch of people, Antifa got away with it because the DAs dropped it. So they should drop. No, I don't even care about that. 
the repressive tolerance is happening, but everybody who gets arrested and gets investigated properly should be held to account for the actual crime they committed, if any. And I don't think that wandering into the Capitol after people started going in constitutes any significant crime. So those people should probably be left mostly alone. You're um, worried about backlash? Are you that uh, that the Democrats are going to overplay their hand here? Uh, I think with, they already are. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the backlash will look like. They're freaking people out. I'll tell you that. They're freaking people out. I don't know how many executive orders we're up to now from, from Mr. Biden, close to 50. But they're freaking people out. That's for sure. Um, there's a lot of people upset. You know, he canceled the the pipeline, 11,000 jobs, I think is the number I heard, just gone. Um, those people mostly supported him, not happy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people really worried about some of these orders that he's put in, whether it's about this climate stuff, whether it's about the eight, the equity stuff, canceling the critical race theory executive order. Um, people are worried about where this is going. The, the, what's the one about the the gender ideology one where, you know, now federal funding in schools, you have to let, I guess, trans trans women play on girls' teams. Uh, people are worried about this stuff. Um, well, I, I will note, this is not what the election was about. These, these issues were not in the main. I mean, he may have said, I'm going to cancel key, uh, Keystone XL. I think he right. did say so. And that would be the, the environmentalist posture. And we know that he would have been a, you know, friendly to environmentalist presidency. Also, with respect to immigration and the border, it was pretty clear. But a lot of these things were not litigated during the actual electoral process. It was about COVID and it was about Trump. Yeah. Uh, but now that the outcome is in, a relatively close election, all things considered, the outcome is in, massive ideological shifts are being uh, implemented, or at least uh, attempted, and uh, the extent to which they have Democratic endorsement is unclear, but there will be a midterm election in 2022, the Congress and so forth. We'll see whether it, whether it holds. Uh, yeah. Clearly, however, the, the activists on the left have got, a, have got a shot at doing something, and they've, they've got a, an open, uh, open road ahead of them with uh, Joe Biden in, yeah. in the White House. Now, you, now, let's not dodge the question, though. So you yeah. have to hold me. You're, you asked me if I voted for Trump, and I have not yet addressed. Yeah. So you've got to, you've got to hold me to the fire. you got to hold me to the fire here, Glenn. How so? Why'd I did vote, vote for, for Trump. Trump. Why'd you vote for Why? Trump? Okay, yeah. so I went into this pretty, pretty heavily in detail before the election. I, there are a number of reasons, one of which is actually kind of profoundly left-wing in orientation of, of all things. Um, the first thing that I noticed, and we already talked a little bit with the Hunter Biden laptop, is that you you may have noticed that the media held Trump to account for an awful lot. You know, even things didn't he didn't do. Yeah, stuff right. He, even they stuff kind, he didn't do. <laughs> yeah, they kind of mentioned everything that he did being wrong a lot. And so the function, and I don't think we had a healthy media under this. In fact, I think they were crazy. Um, but the function of the media should be in a democracy, at least in significant part, it should, of course, be to report the facts, but it should also be to hold power to account. And I see after, especially the Hunter Biden laptop scenario, I saw absolutely no reason to believe that that was going to happen, that we're going to see softball media around Biden and just what Trump was getting was just being held to account isn't even the right word. Okay, the media ha hated Trump. That's the reason to vote for him? No, no, no. Well, yes, partly, um, but not just the media hated Trump. The media is also defending 
Biden. You remember when all these people were like, oh, Fox News is just state media for Trump, just state media, and everybody understands that state media is bad? The New York Times, CNN, what, what are they doing with Biden? What are they doing? That, you know, the state media question is a, is a serious one. When you have a highly partisan media environment and you have the most authoritative sources in the country taking a very biased stance, you have to be very wary of empowering the side that they're biased toward. Okay. It's a little more nuanced than the media didn't like Trump, therefore. It's a little, but that's also a thing. That's my left-wing reason, by the way, is anybody who's being treated that unfairly is probably the underdog. And I am at heart still a leftist in that regard. Like I have to take the side of the underdog. And I didn't think, I mean, I spent three and a half years thinking that Trump was awful. He's probably a dictator. I was, I bought into the whole line. And then all of a sudden I started noticing like, wow, a lot of these stories turned out not to be very true. You know, somebody told me one day, just go, go get on your Google and type in Trump was right and see what comes up. And yeah. it's, it's, it's shocking. And then I started watching, I have to give credit, you know, the walk away movement, the walk away from Democrats, Brandon Straka, he's been struck from everything now. Um, I watched some of their videos, you know, the very famous video in particular stands out in my memory where Trump allegedly um, mocked the disabled reporter. This, of course, was a huge thing. He well, didn't do that? Was, he didn't do that? Well, Okay, hold on. He did that. Okay. He did that. But <laughs> but he also did that for about 30 other people before that. He would be like Nancy Pelosi came out and I said this to her and she was like, "Ah." And it's the same maneuver. In other words, that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Man. Nobody knows that. And then you know the very fine people thing. Like oh, that yeah, was that one. That one's egregious. I mean, Biden says it's when I decided to run for president when I saw him supporting white supremacists. And not a single reporter said to Biden, well, he didn't support white supremacists, which is yeah. actually the case. Now, maybe in someone's imagination, he's friendly to white supremacists because he hasn't denounced them vigorously enough. But in those remarks that he made after Charlottesville, it's simply false to say. It's simply false. That, and, and no one, not a single person said to Joseph Biden, whose reason for running for president he self-declared to have been that Trump did something that he didn't actually do. That's terrifying. It's terrifying. And so this is part of it. Part of it, more of it, most of it, in fact, though, is that I actually know how our federal government works these days a little bit, which is to say, say that I understand the relevance of the administrative state and more importantly, how it's very unaccountable to the voter, right? And so I realized that Biden is already signaling he had his whole racial equity program. He had his whole, you know, all of these different very progressive things he was talking about. The, the, the gender act he was talking about all well before. This is all within my wheelhouse of woke studies. And I'm watching this and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, wow, this guy is going to be not always, but frequently a pen for these activists. And I have a feeling okay. he's going to appoint to administrative positions high up in the Department of Education. Turns out that the top is where he stuck that one. I didn't think it would actually be at the top. High up in the Department of Labor, high up in the Department of, of you know, you name it. You're going to see these activists getting who, positions. Who, is, who has been, I'm sorry, I'm behind the curve here. Who has been designated for Secretary of Education? I and what's wrong with do that this person? because I cannot remember the person's name, but I picture his face very clearly. He has qualifications in one and only one thing, particularly, which is ethnic studies. 
Okay. He is an ethnic studies czar. The same ethnic studies that's just we're seeing in California. That's just an absolute train wreck. We see it in Washington State where they're literally teaching ethno-mathematics instead of mathematics. Uh, the, literally. Um, and I saw that this was likely okay. to be the case, that these people would be, I mean, I could put the Google and find out what his name is, but I've, okay. So your antipathy to, and, and your understanding of, and, and uh, uh, dislike of the, of the woke sensibility all the way back to postmodernism and such, and the fear that Biden would be a, the, the stalking horse for this kind of mentality uh -huh. getting into the federal government. So uh, this is the background because there was a tipping point. I'm listening. There were two tipping points back to back. Number one, I watched those debates, which is always an error, but I watched them anyway, participated in my civic duty. I watched the presidential debates and I watched the vice presidential debate and I watched them refuse to answer the question. Both Biden and Harris refused to answer the question. Will you pack the Supreme Court? Yeah, there's all these articles about that. And they literally just Biden actually just stared down the barrel of the camera like very intensely and just started talking about it's very important that you vote well he didn't even answer the question yeah and just ran down the clock harris said oh you want to talk about that that's very important let's talk about honest abe honest abe of the republican party he he packed the court yeah 1860 like yeah that's a long time ago um circumstances were a little different in 18 i don't know if you know what was going on in 1860 in the country it was a tumultuous time in, yeah, in american history yeah, there's there's some there's a few a few pages of history have been written about about the the 1860s. So it, it's like they won't answer this question. And then there's articles about how oh you know and these aren't small like you know move on or some goofy progressive thing. They're like in the nation. They're in like big places. They're writing things like new statesmen. They're writing things like we need to. Uh, if, if, if Trump wins, we need to disregard, no, sorry, if Biden wins, I, I screw this up every time. If Biden wins, we need to just, and we have a conservative court, we just need to disregard the Supreme Court from now on. If they rule against him, just ignore them. And then maybe we need to pack the court. Maybe we definitely need to pack the court. Maybe what we need to do is abolish. The, this was an actual article that was my final tipping point. So I'm building up with all this, like pack the court was really huge. And then all of a sudden, an article comes out, and I know it's stupid, and I think it was in the New Statement, Statesman or something like this, or The Nation, one or the other. And it, the article comes out, and it says, we need to abolish the Constitution. And it's like, this is what, and I know it's just a, a one writer. People are going right? to call you hysterical, man. Nobody wants to abolish the Constitution. That's hyperbole. Somebody That's does. They wrote the article. Somebody okay. does. And the, this is the thing. You read, you say, nobody wants to abolish the Constitution. But you should go open the book, Critical Race Theory, an introduction by Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk. Basic critical race theory textbook. Page three, a.k.a. first paragraph, first paragraph of the book says, unlike tradition, this is a close to a quote, unlike traditional approaches to civil rights, which favor incrementalism and step-by-step -step progress, we call into question the very premises of the liberal order including enlightenment rationalism, legal reasoning, equality theory, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. Critical race theorists are not real down with the Constitution. Yeah, they don't so like people the electoral people do maybe college. want to abolish. And, and, and then like you look the at the social college. media. Yeah. The social media stuff is how do you use Twitter.com and Jack Dorsey to sidestep the First Amendment? And okay. that's 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 concerning stuff for me because these guys are all on the same side, right? And they're the side that Biden's on. And so Which I is think the wrong side of the culture war for you, 
and is a good reason to vote against Joseph Biden, although I haven't he- really heard a reason for voting for Donald Trump. Oh, he put up he he I see Donald Trump. First of all, being that I've always been slightly left, I've never been particularly keen on a lot on, on some of his policy, but I was pretty happy about his most of his stuff. He started no new wars, for example. We have more peace in the, or had until like the other day, more peace in the Middle East than we've seen in a long time. Miraculously, maybe he wrangled whatever was going on in North Korea to a different level. Um, he put China's feet to the fire where nobody else will. And that's a thing because nobody stand. China is is on a world conquest goal or, or mission right now, and nobody will stand up to them. Nobody will. Do you remember the substantive debate that took place during the campaign about the U.S. China relationship? Because, do. because I don't. I don't. I don't know. No, it, it barely comes up. Nobody will talk about it. What's the, but the critical race theory executive order? By the way, yeah, it was ahead. was key for me too. Culture war again, but nobody nobody will dare. Dare touch this thing. This and finally, is where you have Trump a president enjoins, come out and say it. Uh, Trump declares that the U.S. government won't be using critical race theory ideas in the uh, employment process of federal employees. Right. And in, in federal training. And, it, and it's very important because people do not understand this. Chris Wallace, or who, is that his name in the debate, asked him, he yeah. said, why did you get rid of diversity training? He didn't. Section 10 of the order. Section 10 of the order straight up says this is not to be construed to cancel diversity training. It is these specific teachings, these specific policies, these specific ideas in Section 2 of the order that are prohibited. It doesn't prohibit teaching it in an academic context, as many people have falsely alleged. It says that. That's Part B, I think, of Section 10 of the order. It doesn't prevent you teaching it. It doesn't prevent diversity training or sensitivity training or whatever you want to call the training. It says there are 11 things that you're not allowed to do. You can't racially discriminate, race or sex, actually. You can't racially or sexually scapegoat, blame an entire race or sex for problems. You can't racially or sex uh, uh, stereotype. You can't say that the country in this teaching is intrinsically a racist or evil or sexist place. And so it bans... Technically, with the racial scapegoating and the racial stereotyping, it bans anti-Semitism also. It bans white supremacy. It bans patriarchy. It bans all the things that they would want to ban, in addition to also saying you can't do it in this neo-racist backwards way that critical race theory is cooked up by starting with the assumption that the country is intrinsically racist and everything that happens in it is intrinsically racist. And as Robin D'Angelo has phrased it about a dozen different times in a dozen different places, the question is no longer did racism take place, but rather how did racism manifest in that situation? That's where those trainings start. Is it racism must be present in everything and we're going to go find it. And the tool for finding is called critical race theory. The order itself doesn't ban critical race theory. It bans 11 things that are racial scapegoating, discrimination, stereotyping, and blaming the country at an intrinsic level for being uh, racist, sexist, white supremacist, whatever. I want to know why Joe Biden thinks that we should get rid of those things. I was about to say, it makes you wonder why is that, why is that such a bad thing? Because they want to racially scapegoat, stereotype, discriminate, or blame the country. That's one of the, there's no other option. Because they think the motivation for having done it is somehow itself an anti-black or uh, anti-people of color motivation. And they they want to be on the right side of history. That's right. Because the people who are 
actually going to be on the ground doing the work in the Biden administration are pretty much to a man and woman believers in this uh, way of looking at the world. Correct. And um, it, it, like I said, its first assumption is, and this is, a, again, pretty much a quote from Delgado and Stefanczyk, its first assumption is that racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, not an aberration from them. That is, racism and white supremacy are, and they this is their quote, the normal science of society. So let's let's close out here. I mean, uh, very good talking to you, James. And, you know, let's talk again sometime. Yeah. We still got to uh, figure out, like, if your mea culpa was incorrect. Because I think you've got it backwards. I think you got it backwards, Glenn. Okay. My mea culpa was I misjudged Trump's uh, character defects, or at least the gravity uh, threat to the nation of his character defects, as manifest in his refusal to step aside after he had exhausted his remedies in the face of the election defeat. Uh, he put the country in jeopardy. I don't think he incited insurrection quote unquote, that's me. I think that's an exaggeration, but I think he was playing with fire uh, in this post-election environment. And it was it's dangerous for the Republic. And I said I was wrong about uh, de minimizing the threat to the Republic of Trump's uh, narcissism and, and, and tendency to self-aggrandizement. So what's wrong with that? So I don't have a problem with his with saying that there there's a risk in his narcissism, which I suspect is the case. Uh, that he, and, and and I also agree with you that he was playing with fire by continuing to push the issue and push the issue and push the issue of election fraud and misfeasance. Um, that said, I think that the story goes the other way. I think that the reason that we perceive Trump as being such a maybe we could say Trump is a danger to democracy is because he was off the script. There is a script that's been running, not in the conspiratorial sense, but the, 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 he, he, he came in, he was like, I'm an outsider. I'm not part of the, the system. I'm going to drain the swamp, blah, blah, blah. And the swamp didn't want to get drained. The swamp did not want to be drained. And presenting that threat to their interests, holding China to account in a way that nobody else had, striking the counter narrative every time they went after him rather than him bowing down and kowtowing he stood back up and maybe he hit back harder um i think that what we see is a manufactured crisis around a guy where very i take trump's side on blaming the media for what we're looking at not the media side blaming trump for what we're looking at and i think that that's where it goes backwards i think that what happened okay. was that somebody who wouldn't play their game got in power and they Rather than ever trying, and this is the, the key point, rather than ever taking even a single step to tamp it down, they just ratcheted it up every single opportunity they got. Often, from, like from very day fine one, people. Not my president from, from day one. Not my president. Yeah. And, and Russia, then just Russia every hoax. story. Russian hoax, dictator, dictator, dictator. And I know you say that, you know, after he exhausted his legal, he did actually step down. He, one of the things Twitter took down, videos that they removed, was Trump saying, that my legal options have been used up. I will have a, an orderly, he didn't say peaceful, he said orderly transfer of power, blah, blah, blah. Another one of the videos they took down was him saying that we need to be, you need to go home, you need to be peaceful, we need peace. Trump is a clumsy speaker. I think he's probably a sharper mind than people give him credit, but he, he's, a, he's a peculiar speaker. And so um, I feel like that there is a deliberate ratcheting up around him. And my perspective on that is that he didn't go along with everything they wanted to have somebody go along with. And they ratcheted it up and ratcheted it up and ratcheted it up. 
So to blame Trump for not bowing to something that was trying to break him, I think is, is illegitimate. And so I do have and always have had concerns about his self-aggrandizement and his willingness to come out and say things about himself that were probably not true and to push narratives past probably the point that they needed to be pushed. But at the same time, this is a much more complex and dynamic situation that has has contributions and and to to what was going on that are far broader. And when you find yourself in a position like him, not to defend the fact that he goes too far and plays with fire, I find myself in this position a lot. There's no easy way to back down because if you back down, you lose. So the the scenario, a media storm creates a scenario where you have to be a bit of a jerk. And I live this, so I understand it. Because something tells, uh, me, something tells me that we are in the the quiet of the storm, so to speak. That it's not over. It's not over by a long shot. And I, I just <laughs> want, I don't know what's coming next, but I, I am, uh, I'm very worried about what I am might too. be coming I am next. Too. I am, I, I vary between worried and despairing, um, but. You know, there are hopeful signs, so you never know. Uh, you never know. And I'm glad that, that, that there are people such as you and ourselves that are, that are willing to have conversations and to, to tread the, the ground where you're not supposed to tread. And, you know, where is it? What is it? Where, tread where angels won't go. Uh, <laughs> Man, I'm going to get so much flack for talking to you, James Lindsay, but, but I'm glad I did. And I'm going to do it again if you give me the opportunity. I would uh, love to. Thanks a lot. If we can ever get over this stupid virus, we can get dinner or something sometime. That'd be great. We didn't even talk about COVID. That's got to be a whole nother. Uh, uh, it's a whole thing. Thing to, to do. I'm probably not allowed to talk about that either. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks, James, Lindsay. Uh, and uh, we'll talk again. Take care of yourself yep. now. Thanks, Glenn.